Welcome to Shmeman Speaks, featuring the words and wisdom of Father Alexander Shmeman from the archives of St. Vladimir's Seminary in New York. Went last time through the whole um, uh, Old Testament background and connotations of the theme of the temple so as to make it uh, more or less understandable <clears throat> what uh, the church means, the tradition means, in, first of all, this constant identification of, or rather, identification <clears throat> of Mary with uh, the temple and also the various parts of the temple. And uh, you do remember what were the main orientation of last lecture, uh, it was uh, the temple stands as a kind of unifying theme of the whole history of salvation and uh, in its three dimensions, in its uh, cosmological or cosmical presuppositions, the world got created as a temple, as a dwelling place for God as the place of encounter, communion, and so on and so forth, the world losing that uh, nature, not nature, but at least the life as temple, obscuring it, the sin being in fact a kind of desacralization of the cosmos. And the, then the redemptive process as the restoration of the temple. And again, here there are so many stages in the Old Testament, well, I will not return to that now. And ultimately, the, the temple fulfilled in Christ's incarnation and uh, continues through the Church as uh, to its eschatological fulfillment, new creation fulfilling, being fulfilled by God as his dwelling place, the new Jerusalem, which Christ himself is the temple. Now, this is the background against which uh, the, 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 uh, the mariological <clears throat> dimension of that temple experience, temple vision, temple idea developed and focused ultimately in the feast of uh, the presentation of Mary uh, to the temple, which is built around this constant theme, uh, uh, the temple of the Savior, the pure temple of the Savior, enters the temple of God and fulfills it. So, uh, I think that all this uh, I try to make it clear. Today, I would like to come to uh, certain themes of that celebration, which we have no time to uh, to the East itself, and seeing how this is um, proceed in, in, in its liturgical setup. So as we go through uh, the feast as it exists today, and by the way, one remark which is common to, uh, to the feast of the temple and also to the next scene uh, which we might start tonight, and that is of the um, uh, eschatological theme of Mariology, the assumption, the dormition, uh, really, or 
this, you know, and reading it, in fact, I'll tell you, in three uh, languages, uh, in English, so to speak, for your sake, in Slavonic, because I know it by heart since my childhood, and finally, uh, in, in, in the Greek original, I'm surprised again and again, and, and this, this year's reading was um, very much uh, um, uh, a kind of rediscovery of something I thought before, but um, uh, did not um, experience with strength, is that how, in fact, this famous um, mythological or apocryphal things, you know, all those uh, things which, which, which I call the orchestration of the things, how, in fact, the literature in its ultimate development is so. <laughs> it is uh, surely the key those girls going with the candle, but this is not all the key. In fact, the liturgy, and this is a kind of really victory of the Holy Spirit, transcends this. It is not a celebration of various anecdotes, so to speak, in, in, in the real sense of that word, some little details, some little nice, beautiful themes, not at all. It's, it's still very sober. It's the ultimate vision which comes. But maybe it's not that easy to, uh, to um, uh, you know, really one has uh, to work with certain uh, spiritual preparation in order to, to really accomplish of the liturgical uh, life. All right, going back to that celebration and taking it in its present form, you know that for each liturgy you can, um, for each liturgical expression of every feast, you, uh, there can be a tremendous work done on how it reaches its final form. This is Again, it's very visible in, in the Dormition um, liturgy, which we'll study later on, and which even today, the Greek and the Slavic uh, texts differ greatly. Uh, and so it is. But if we uh, take that ultimate, what we have today, these are the themes, these are the objects of vision, contemplation, and um, um, I would say almost participation that we find. The first theme and, and going through the whole, they are not uh, simply one, then the second, then the third. From that point of view, the hymnological liturgical complex is much more uh, uh, like uh, a symphony in which the theme appears and continues. This is then is combined with other themes. But the first one, which, is, which appears at the beginning, but of course goes to the whole service, is the, the theme of uh, Mary as an offer, of her presentation to the temple as a sacrifice. Now, the temple, of course, is the place where man offers sacrifices to God. And uh, by being the fulfillment of the temple, Mary is the pure sacrifice. Take the following Stichira's uh, uh, hymns uh, at the small vespers, which a footnote sometimes represent, uh, because no one has served small vespers for the like thousand years. Therefore, um, uh, therefore, um, uh, uh, they sometimes reflect an earlier state of hymnology. Not always, but sometimes they are important for the liturgical analysis. And here we have those three first years of Lord I have cried at small vespers. Have 
having received the fruit of the promise come from the Lord, today in the temple, Joachim and Anne offered the mother of God as an acceptable sacrifice. And Zechariah, the priest, the great high priest, received her with his blessing. Second, into the holy places, the holy of holies is fitting to be brought to dwell as a sacrifice acceptable to God. The virgins adorned by virgins go before her carrying torches and offer her to God as a most sacred vessel. The third one, let the gate of the temple wherein God dwells be opened. For Joachim brings within today glory the temple and throne of the king of all, and he consecrates as an offering to God her whom the Lord has chosen to be his mother. Now, I could continue both great friends for matters and this and that, but I think that those three hymns uh, of the small vespers which inaugurate the feast um, illustrate very well, express that theme of the sacrifice. Now, uh, the idea and the fact, rather than the idea, long before all ideas appeared, the fact of the sacrifice stands, as everyone knows, at the very center of religion. There have never been, uh, before our comical time, uh, religions without sacrifices, you know. Today we think that we can sort of live without sacrifice, I don't mean, uh, but uh, Whenever man was serious, and that's why I call our time comical, uh, uh, the, uh, the sacrifice was all, always at the center of religion. And uh, there, are, there have been thousands, uh, you, you, you could uh, spend your whole life just reading the books written about the sacrifice. What is the sacrifice? How it appeared? Uh, just to enumerate the various theories, ideas, by which men explain the, uh, the sacrifice uh, would, would take an enormous time. However, and this is what, uh, what we constantly find in the study of worship, study of the liturgy. In fact, uh, the event was there, but no idea, no explanation, no theory was able to, to take it in all its fullness. Not that I can do that today, but there's one, uh, one uh, uh, constant um, mistake was made, you know, because, not so much because of man's inability to understand what it is, but because of the medieval deviation of theology uh, from its uh, being rooted in uh, the religious experience itself, was of course this identification of the sacrifice with the idea of immolation, retribution, this legalistic sacrifice. Where there is sacrifice, there is destruction, blood, death. And uh, it was uh, it, that idea, of course, uh, which is central in the West, you know, there's the attempt of holy sacrifice of the Mass, and that idea of the holy sacrifice of Mass led, let's say, the Latin medieval theology uh, to even identify the Mass with a new immolation of Christ. Christ dies on our altars. Always thought that the whole idea was that his sacrifice means his 
South Africa was attacked once and for all. And of course, the breaking of the bread, or, or uh, even the, the, the main symbolism of the Eucharist, bread and wine in their separation, what understood as the image of that immolation, death. Um, almost the morbid, bloody idea of, 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 of the Mass, rooted in a certain idea of the sacrifice, the sacrifice as a duty, as a price to be paid for. And um, uh, as I said, it, 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 it dominated uh, the theology and it began to dominate, uh, to dominate um, uh, to some extent even the liturgical life of the church. And ironically, it is not from theology uh, that a certain balance of that one-sided understanding of the sacrifice came, but precisely from a rather um, neutral, uh, uh, objective study of religion, from that religionswissenschaft, the study of religion, which although it started in 19th century as a kind of anti-Christian bias, became today, theologians uh, uh, still don't know, it, tremendous help because they are those who still took seriously <laughs> worship uh, when theology abandoned even the interest when well became totally uh, the the uh, it will become even more obvious when we come to the assumption the almost total inability of a certain type of theology even simply to understand <laughs> what certain texts mean or you know, because of the conditioning of the present position now to make a long story short, and believe me it's a long story, what this uh, study of the sacrifice, in an attempt to understand it in all its complexity and simplicity at the same time, discovered, and today it's a commonplace among the students of religion, that the original uh, motivation, cause of this sacrificial character of religion, is not at all the idea of retribution, immolation, and payment but a kind of almost natural desire of man for communion with God. Uh, the sacrifice is the result of religion as desire. Not that this desire for God, the desire for the Savior, the desire for the mysterium tremendum, from that, for that numinous, for the whole, has been all, always pure, obviously not. If religion is uh, is as forward as everything else, and even probably more and obscure, but what remains central is that this sacrifice is 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 first of all man's participation in the holy, in the sanctification, and uh, however that sanctification, that participation was understood and experienced. For example, this uh, uh, this um, uh, fundamental uh, fundamental um, or rather um, one of the most primitive expressions of of, uh, of the sacrifice, the burning burning of let's say an animal, burning of the part of God, and one part is the priest, and one part is man, and so on and so forth, is simply. Um, 
rooted in that idea that when we eat the same food, when God consumes our food and we consume the food which we offer to God, that makes us consubstantial to God, whoever he is. Man, <laughs> I always thought, Van der Lerke said that God is the late comer in religion, the transcendent God. But the whole, the thing, the transcendent is not late comer. This is the first, um, the, the, the real beginning of religion. Therefore, um, and, and that of course applies, that makes it possible for us to read the Old Testament with the other which is full of those um, old burnings and offerings and, and the smell, eh? Can you imagine what it was when they killed all those animals and devil fruits from what, what kind of barbecue smell was there, you know, it's all the world. It, it, it's horrifying. And yet it was really so, uh, so hygienic in our religion that we, we don't want even the street of the church with the holy water because the carpet might be abolished. You know, it's, it's all in those microscopic, you know, forms uh, and so on. But the man wasn't, he lived in those smells, he lived in that. If the man is, uh, and some, God knows, I'm not quoting him as a holy father, said the man is a passion, although he has a useless passion. Useless is that because he's an atheist. But he's right in saying that man is, first of all, a desire. Freud sees something that he says, libido, desire, even lost. Man lives by the desire, and his desire, ultimately, every desire, the lowest, the very lowest desire is still the caricature, the deformation, the, the, the mutilation, the deviation of that which he is by nature created by God, you know. For thyself thou hast created us, and our heart will never be at peace until it finds thee. This, uh, this um, uh, uh, formula of St. Augustine is, of course, absolutely adequate to what I'm trying to say right now. Therefore, in fact, this desire for, without the communion, the, the real purification of, of, of the sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise. Uh, again, our, our centuries of our, um, of our surrender to this, this idea of the sacrifice, do ut des, I, I uh, give you so that you may give me something, you know, I, I'll offer court liturgies for the dead and, and he will take the elevator to the next floor, somehow, you know, and, uh, you know, this pragmatic idea of religion um, made us almost forget. <laughs> reading, reading, even author books about divine religion. Probably when we see the sacrifice of praise, this is something which the Lord never stops This is a good idea. This is, uh, this is a kind of, it's a little flower, you know, on, on, on the, in the bathroom, you know. Uh, why, why not, you know? But uh, when it comes to sacrifice, we were looking for, for the knife. We are looking for uh, murder. Let us stand aright. Let us offer in peace one. The holy oblation of peace, a sacrifice of praise. Now this is, in the world began as a sacrifice of praise. This is the, the beginning of the world. This is the whole relationship between, between uh, Adam created as priest 
to offer this world the sacrifice and praise of God and the restoration of the whole thing in Christ. Now, all this is essential uh, to, to, to remember when we sing, to, to, when we uh, listen to those tequilas, which are sung so quickly that people don't even probably pay any attention to them. But what we, what the, the first idea identified with Mary is that she's in offering. We saw it at Christmas. All the world, all the whole world offers this and this. What do we offer? We offer, you know, uh, even if, uh, the only real um, reality of the sacrifice today is the present of love. When, when we, uh, for no reason at all, no, no understandable reason, offer all of a sudden something beautiful to so, uh, Nothing else but just flowers, you know. Uh, now this is, this is the, the, the background of the whole thing, and therefore the temple, which is the place of the encounter, which is the place where God accepts our sacrifices, and therefore is love, and therefore returns, uh, makes us participants of that which we love. Mary is the fulfillment in, uh, in, of, of that. She is a, um, uh, the um, uh, sort of uh, incarnation, expression, the, the real expression of that which we offer to God. Not for expiation, not for justification, not be happy that at the end of whole history of creation, finally we can offer something beautiful to God, right? I mean, this is the first thing. The temple is no longer, you know, why God would need our, our, our sheep and lambs and camels and so on and so forth. He doesn't need that. He, he's patient. He said, all right, what about the poor, poor people? They have nothing but camels to offer to let that be the camels, but he absolutely has nothing to do with camels, right? It's like uh, the children sometimes bring you something that they think is very important, uh, a, a match that they colored in red. <coughs> you say, thank you, John, thank you, but uh, the moment John disappears, that camel goes somewhere. What I sort of am thankful for is that he thought of me exactly. But the match, just like the camel, or 3,000 camels, or 40,000 Aztecs and young boys who were killed in, in Mexico City, you know, every day. Uh, this is, and yet at the end, and this is of course the beginning of that, at the end the temple is purified with all that. What we're offering is not, is something really which God can use. <laughs> something which, which is not, uh, not a, a kind of dead-end sacrifice. Uh, it is something which truly can be finally the very place of that meeting. So the sacrifice has such connotations of fullness, of beauty, of of uh, of a kind of really meaning that we are breaking through. Read the epistle to the Hebrews. All those sacrifices brought and, and offered and offered, and they could never really satisfy the need for which they were offered. Now we are approaching that sacrifice, which is a sacrifice of praise. And let, uh, let the, uh, the, the theologians be scared. I mean, it's only one sacrifice, sacrifice of Christ. So, no. Even in the liturgy, there are always two sacrifices. Ours first, which becomes Christ's, which he has used. Uh, unless we make that distinction, we'll never understand uh, what, in what sense we are we are accepted in this sacrificial life of Christ himself. So this is the first um, 
Uh, and of course, um, this sacrifice is brought by Joachim and Anna, who stand here again for the, the whole Old Testament, who stand for the whole piety of the temple, precisely. Of all that in the Old Testament is that line, which I, I always feel we do not um, notice. Again, because we are so used to, to read to read Western biblical scholars, the events, the mighty events of God, the prophecy, but what is the real uh, mainstream of the Bible is exactly this continuity of of what of love for God, of um, uh, of um, this sacrificial life. At the beginning of the gospel, how much of that is accumulated? Joachim and Anna, Zechariah and Elizabeth. John is the product of the Old Testament. Mary is the product of, the, of that thing. Finally, um, uh, Simeon and Anna. No. Always those old people, Old Testament, all that, all that wisdom, all that generations and continuity of fighting, and finally produces, and, uh, because everything in God is personal. And he was stacked. All these are first. He says, how, how do you know the name of Jotimina? How do I? The church names in Jotimina, and, uh, and I don't see why we, they wouldn't be that. Uh, you will say, X and Z, right? I mean, uh, uh, what, what that name means is that they are real persons. The real person. And, and, and uh, uh, so the gospel always means. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joachim and Anne, Simeon and Anne, and when the Gospel doesn't supply with me, Swedish, Apoch, impure source. Huh? Impure source sometimes carries diamonds with it, you know, and uh, there is not one single reason to all, always think that the Holy Spirit has been fooled, <laughs> that somehow we bypass, we invented something. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are the, those who are that the Old Testament as the one which prepares that gift. And finally, the priest, that priest calls Zechariah, the same one who is the father of St. John the Baptist, is fulfilling his the priesthood. The priest is the one who offers sacrifices. In Hungarian, even today, the priest etymologically means the man who kills animals. <laughs> so it will be the very reverend murderer of animals. Uh, in, in, in Hungarian. Uh, and this is what uh, what uh, uh, he is finally fulfilled. He, he gets that. So this is the, uh, the, the, the late motif. One idea that the temple is sacrifice. The temple, when she enters, she enters as the sacrifice. She is the beginning the, of that fulfillment uh, so, uh, of the temple as sacrifice. She inaugurates that which the church will call the spiritual sacrifice. We offer again this bloodless, you know, this, this reasonable service and sacrifice. She, and what is that spiritual sacrifice? The spiritual sacrifice is first of all the sacrifice of oneself. Uh, uh, oh, uh, son, give me thy heart. No, I don't want anything. I don't want uh, external things. I don't want those camels. It is the spiritual sacrifice with the man himself understands as self-offering to God. And of course, uh, from in the Christian perspective, 
And that is the perspective of this old, the old feast, reading the events of many lives from the experience of the church. It is the beginning of the church as a sacrificial body. <coughs> Believe me, that in Orthodox ecclesiology, as in all our ecclesiologies, uh, the terrible lack is exactly the understanding of the church as a sacrificial body. <coughs> uh, the modern ecclesiology is much more expressed in terms of, of consumerism. The clergy servicing the people, uh, the, ser the, the clergy fulfilling our or the latest religious needs. The service is a great place where God serves man rather than man serves God. And therefore, this sacrificial dimension of, of just like baptism and chrismation is, is sacrificial. It's not only, uh, it's not only we kill people in the baptismal form. You know, we always understand how God gives grace and gives support and this, this and that. But first of all, he requires that total sacrifice. And, and this is what, what we find uh, absent in today's ecclesiology, and here, Mariology, here that image of the church, uh, of Mary as the image of the icon of the church, is inaugurated in this feast as the, as the sacrifice. The second theme, um, by the way, uh, I should mention this more, that, that the constant um, um, key to the whole celebration, as you always find out in the Psalms, and here it is, the, the, the Psalm 45, 44 in, in, the, uh, in the Eastern Bible, and that is, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of... It is from that Psalm 45 that almost all the, the verses, the prokinina, the, the, uh, the verses of the apostate are taken, and this is where we find those famous... Um, uh, uh, king's daughters were among thy, thy honorable women upon thy right. Hearken a daughter and consider and incline thy ear. Forget also thy own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and worship of him, and the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall. So it is this Psalm 45 which goes and unifies the whole liturgy of the presentation or the entry to the temple. So the next the second theme that we find there is the Holy of Holies. And again, uh, uh, there is no need to go through the whole service. As you read it, you'll find it going all the time, all the time. Uh, now, this, um, uh, the Holy of Holies in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in the temple uh, is a kind of temple within the temple. Or if you want, to the temple as presence the temple as presence. It is the place where God dwells, not only comes, not only is worship, not only is it, but where that, uh, and uh, uh, she is uh, constantly identified with the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle, the, the very place of the presence. Apostica, the small vespers, holy gates of the sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies receive a virgin, the spotless tabernacle of God the Almighty. Uh, ye virgins joyfully bearing torches attend the pure virgin on her way as she enters the Holy of Holies, the bride of the King of Holies. 
The living bridal chamber of God who word receives bread from the hands of the divine angels. He dwells in the holy of holies. Now, again, one cannot stress enough this this um, uh, this um, identification with the holy of holies. If you remember this complex development of that uh, of that theme in the Old Testament and uh, everything else, there's always this double. This double criminology, all that applies to Mary, all that applies to the temple, applies now to Mary, and ultimately will apply to the church because of her, or through her, because this is the uh, this continuity. Uh, uh, then we have um, the, oh, here, uh, maybe I should add from the great Vespers a couple of examples of that. Uh, today let us the faithful dance for joy, singing to the Lord with songs and hymns, venerating his hallowed tabernacle, the living ark that contained the word who cannot be contained. For she, young child in the flesh, is offered in wondrous fashion to the Lord, and with rejoicing Zechariah, the great high priest, receives her, the great, great priest receives her as a dwelling place of God. If we know the heavy Biblical meaning of that dwelling place, you know. Let's not forget that we are speaking from within a totally devaluated language. Uh, uh, all those words, you know, mean almost nothing because they have come to mean almost anything. Uh, almost anything. We, the words are so weak, but when um, this dwelling place of God you know, this this, uh, this is a double affirmation of the Old Testament. The total transcendence. God is heaven. God is the other. God is the all the all the most heart. God in fact is 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 a is a cloud which obscures us and dwells among us. The same one who is most high. It is you know, it's it took centuries to combine those two experiences. The one, the, the sort of um, uh, total transcendence of God, uh, which excludes, to which our comical world goes back, Voltaire, the God who watched, who is no one, the great architect of the Freemasons, other super boring theories of, 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 of God, you know. The total transcendence, the kind of abstract logos, or then this vantage, this presence of God everywhere and therefore know that, know, there is, know that, that the biblical personal I am the one friend, the I, and at the same time, this possibility is that church, but how can those two things be combined? If really God has prepared himself the creation as a very place, as a temple, as adequate and desiring for that, for, for that presence. Now, what is important, of course, that every time I enumerate or, or come to another dimension of Mariology, we are discovering, if so facto, by the same act, uh, how poor our rational, canonical, institutional ecclesiology is. How uh, Mariology was not used for the understanding of what the Church is, because all this temple terminology, Temple experience, temple dimensions, 
are in fact um, through Mary understanding why the church is the bride of God and so on and so forth. Now come the, the, the sort of one of the first uh, climax, and that is the reading, the first climax of the visual. And uh, they are, this is the concentration of, of precisely those fundamental Old Testament experiences and revelations concerning the temple. The first one is the Exodus chapter, in, 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 in extract from chapter 40. The readings are not simply chapters, they are combined, you know, it's 1 to 5, 9 to 10, 16, 35, 35, which means that there is a theological selection. Now what is the, this, this, it is uh, every time we have one expression of the temple, this time it's the Lord speaking to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month shall thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation, and thou shalt put therein the ark of the testimony, and cover the ark with a veil, and thou shalt bring in the table, and set in order the thing of ark to be set in order upon it, and thou shalt bring in the candlestick, and light the lamps thereof, and thou shalt set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony, and put the hanging of the door to the tabernacle, and thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint the table. Now, all are present in all the She is the ark, she is the veil, she is the door, she is uh, the lamp, she is... So in other terms, uh, this reading is a kind of... Uh, uh, you know, we are very fond that Mariology which sets us a very desirable and nice kind of feminine second object of our things, you know, and... Uh, uh, which, by the way, was will become to some extent the, the, the Western mythology, but rather constantly. The Mary is never separated. She is never separated from that great cosmical, ecclesial, and eschatological thing. She is, in our modern language, if you want to, the symbol, the key to everything, to the Church, because she is all that. What are, you know, all those enumerations, thou shalt do this, the last, and this and that, they all finally are only the foreshadowing. In what sense? First one person, and then through her, all those who are in the church, uh, all the church, and finally the whole cosmos has to be the fulfillment of all this. And the ark, and the veil, and the presence, and the tabernacle, and the love, and the light, all the civilism. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him so deeply. Then, a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud above their own, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, again, you know how it's read. And so we have really no time to, to, to concentrate on that. But if you will note that in each of those figures, at the end, the one who is all through all that cannot do so. And Moses could not, was not able to end the cloud structure. Why? Immediately after, and that is the Old Testament's wisdom, the moment it is, uh, it is um, uh, uh, in the midst of man, the perspective of the future fulfillment. It is not this paganism which establishes the rules so God can make it. Bang, 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 sacrifice, grace. No, 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 God still, it's all is the, 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 
uh, in that perspective of the future fulfillment. Two fulfillments, three fulfillments, the fulfillment in Mary, the fulfillment in Christ, the fulfillment in the Church, the fulfillment in the Eschaton. This is, I think the reading from the third book of Kings, you know, uh, which in the English Bible is the first of Kings, the second one. We dealt with the tabernacle in the desert, Moses. The first then we immediately jump or a couple of centuries and we have the the, 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 the temple, Solomon, right? So as ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. This is by the way the house of the Lord, it's no longer the tabernacle, it's the it's it's the development. The whole mystery of the temple, the old testament is then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribe, the chief and the fathers, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David to Zion, all the elders in Israel. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation, all the forty vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those did the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled with the king, were with him before the ark. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord into his place, into the oracle of the house, of the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread forth their wings. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables, tables of stone with Moses. And then, again, and it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, the cloud filled, a famous cloud, which always, always is the great symbol of that presence, and yet of the, it's still, it's still dark. Immediately the next chapter, so that the priests could not and to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. And Moses was not able, the priests were not, uh, were not, um, uh, could not stand. And finally the last, the Ezekiel, uh, the uh, last reading, uh, which is read at, at virtually at all, uh, at all uh, theological, mariological uh, feasts, and it is the, this, uh, you know, the prophet, this is the last gift. This is for the ultimate temple, the temple after the exile of Rome. And it shall be that upon the eighth day, already that mystery of the eighth day appears. The eschatological perspective. And so forward the priest shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar and your peace offering. Uh, uh, and all this was done, then brought ye me the way of the north gate before the house. And I looked. Yes, excuse me. It is that famous gate. This gate shall be shut again. But Moses wasn't able. The priest could not. The gate of that temple will be shut. It shall not be opened. No man shall enter in it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered it. Therefore, it shall be shut. It is for the prince. The prince he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord fills the so, all this to say something very simply, that this cloud, that is glory of God, which in Old Testament temples is, is, is the ultimate coming, the presence of God in his creation, all that is, finally is expressed, um, uh, given, materialized almost in man, in the human being, and that human being that adequacy of the human being to what 
he or she or maybe they are to be his in in Mary. So this is the um, the uh, now the, the next theme which we find in um, in the liturgy also is centered on the word preordained, preordained. Um, for example, the uh, on um, on the apostolity or apostic uh, on, on, on that feast. Come, holy peoples, and let us praise her who alone is undefiled. She who was foretold by the prophets and offered in the temple, the mother preordained before all ages, who in the last times has been shown forth at Theotokos. O Lord, at her intercession, grant us thy peace and great mercy. One. Psalm 5, next to hears. Rejoice with them, ye mothers, ye virgins, dance for joy, ye barren, be of good cheer, for the preordained queen of all has opened the kingdom of heaven unto us. Rejoice and be exceeding glad people. Now, here, Mariology takes, takes those two essential dimensions. It is preordained from all, before all ages. It is... Uh, in other terms, there is a kind of eternal, ideal plan of God, and this plan has that preordained mother. It is not uh, just a consequence of uh, the sin, the necessity somehow to to have a mother, because of, it is, uh, and if it's uh, before all ages, we are back to that problematic of the Beata Ade Culpa, of Felix Ade Culpa, of beautiful sin of Adam, which brought Christ. No, it's not the sin of Adam that brings Christ down. It's not uh, the sin of Adam that makes God select one. It is rather the, before all ages that mother and then later on the preordained queen of all will see that finally the meaning of that queen which we constantly sing the of God, the Queen. Uh, we'll see that later on in the Assumption uh, theme. But it is a theme of the preordained, of the kind of eternal prototype, which is fulfilled in Mary, means that she reveals something absolutely essential in the cosmical plan of God. And therefore, if the Church is the temple, the church is the platform. Then, of course, what is revealed in in and about Mary, about that preordained mother, about that preordained queen, is obviously revealed about the church. Um, now, what what all that um, uh, uh, means ecclesiologically? We can we could go to those two canons, which are uh, very Byzantine, very elaborated very beautiful and but you'll find in fact the same themes always orchestrated more what uh, I said that this um, uh, just as annunciation uh, uh, deals not exclusively but mainly with the cosmical aspects of biology Newton uh, uh, this uh, uh, feast of the temple and the around that feast the identification of, of uh, 
Mary with every cultic object, uh, <coughs> as worship. Everything in the temple is instrument of worship. The whole temple is holy, and every part of it is holy, and everything is functional, and everything expresses ultimately that one great movement of aura. So what this uh, theme which is central in Mariology, and sometimes in uh, secondary text, it becomes almost a little bit tarsed, you know, in this innumerable acatist, you know, which uh, fed uh, in a kind of great sea spiritual food, you know, also exists, you know, and sometimes this 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 is done, this identification is not done in this, in, in this uh, feast, very beautiful, but very, you know, rejoice or door, uh, especially in English translation, it, 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 uh, it's not bad, or the Lord knows Ручка злотая, и кадильница, и кивот, and so on and so forth. But what uh, stands behind all that, and what is the, uh, is of course that, um, first of all, something that we badly need. It, it, the widening of, of the uh, doctrine, idea, definition, and experience of the Church. Uh, I would put uh, it in very strange terminology, which I think it is to be used here, you know. In the course of ages, the Church has become terribly masculine. Now, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that the, simply that the women were not permitted here and there. Masculinity here doesn't mean uh, that it can be replaced by a kind of sort of asexual. Let's abolish all differences, so to speak, not pay attention to them. And, uh, uh, but I mean that, uh, by masculinity, I mean something which we all know. And it's, it, it is precisely this reduction of the church to a kind of pragmatic institution. Uh, well, maybe uh, uh, the experience of our councils would be a good illustration. I remember those terribly masculine councils. For example, the pension fund is a very masculine, right? I mean, or uh, or an endless composition of endless rules. Uh, uh, the canon law, which is essential, the institution, but the canon law cannot be an object. You cannot say rejoice for canon law, <laughs> or or uh, uh, although it's absolutely essential. Uh, and and when I see the masculinization, it is the absence in the church's experience uh, of, uh, of um, this kind of transparency. It, it is tremendously organizational, visible. We are, um, even in the last council, which was probably a very, uh, very, very great advancement, or rather retreat from that masculinity, as well as we avoid, we are becoming an efficient church. Who cried for that old and efficient, non-efficient which which wasn't thinking in terms of chalice pattern and xeroxing machine, you know, as 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 tools So, but uh, what I what I mean by masculine is precisely the narrowing down, and the piety also. The piety also has become a masculine in what sense? By making, unfortunately, the counterpart of it too feminine. It is 
the disappearance from the memory of the church, from the vision of the church, precisely of those cosmical connotations of the church, that the church is not in addition to various other things, uh, states uh, and so on, an inst religious institute. No, the church is life. Life. Now, you know how is life in biblical <laughs> The church is uh, not ex something existing for its own sake. It is only the place where that stream of life is given to us. And with a, a kind of rejoicing. Now, it is it, it, the day the Mariological feasts will descend. By the way, under the influence of that uh, of that kind of, of ecclesiology, the institutional ecclesiology, or the calculations only of what is the price I have to pay for salvation. Take, for example, orthodoxy, the doctrinal truth, which is essential. But we understand that the orthodoxy has, first of all, a number of definitions by the council, something defined, something concrete. They feed, you believe that way, but the term orthodoxy in Greek didn't mean that at the beginning. It means, you know, in the Russian translation originally was more correct, around more Slavic, to glorify God the right way, and not simply to, to remember all possible definitions. Nothing has ever come from definitions as such. Everything comes from the encounter with something which is over the heart. And therefore, uh, out of the influence of that kind of institutional, pragmatic, efficient, saving ecclesiology, rather, even Mariology must be born. We'll see that when we hit at the very end the chapter of Mary as protection. It, uh, uh, rather than seeing she herself was feminized, you know, in the sense that she became exactly kind of prototype of human and, and all this astutism some like like a, like a box for complaints, how you call that, and, 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 uh, which we have in office sometimes, where every employee can put a little bit hmm? suggestion box, you know, <laughs> coffee is not hot enough, we suffer too much, you know, the children are not good, you know, it's all so important. Now, rather than, rather than seeing in her uh, exactly a kind of dimension, what is the real, the cost, the life, and so on, uh, all that was uh, so, when I speak about Mary and uh, the Church, and say that she is truly, in the very real sense, and those who do courses with me know the way I use the term symbol. The symbol is not a kind of little illustrative sign. Uh, the, it is not the CHO for water or things like that. Uh, H-O, excuse me. Uh, CH is for, for, for Czechoslovakia and the Karlskrohn. But anyway, uh, or, or whatever it is, you see, uh, it is, the symbol is uh, the visibility of the industry. We cannot, we know today that the fathers did not define the church. And the moment you want to define the church, whether you define it as a community of the believers, whether you define it, no, the church can be only shown through symbols and images. There are definitions of the church, like the body of Christ, Point. It's a good one. The temple of the Holy Spirit. It's also a good one. But the the church has a personal focus. The church is two things. 
The church is first of all, and I'm using Pauline terminology now, Christ in us. Christ in us. Not I live, but Christ lives in me. It is divine initiative. It is the presence of the divine initiative. It is the gift of the divine initiative. When we enter the church, first of all, God offers to us. It's offered. And from that point of view, the institution, the church's institution, bishop, priest, deacons, worship, everything, it, the institution is the symbol of the gift. The symbol of the gift. It is the priest has been, is, is, is not a, asking about because we are in those post-election days of the metropolitan knowledge. How many times I had to explain to people who probably were not convinced at all that the episcopate in the church, for example, is not a charismatic function. God preserve us from charismatic bishops. Uh, uh, the bishop is a good break, which, by the way, the car is as important to save the least as the accelerator. Because what would be the accelerator without the brake? Corpses. Uh, uh, so from that point of view, the, 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 the structure, the church as a given unchanging, essentially unchanging, uh, presence is always the presence of the gift. It is charismatic only in one sense, in its identity. It is always always the same death. It is always the same Christ that has given himself to us and so on. And that is the first dimension. Christ in us. Christ to us. Christ. Now the second one is the church as response. The church as gift and the church as response. The church as gift to us. It's the person Everything can be identified with Christ himself. We today say, who is the bishop? The image of Christ. Who is the priest? The image of Christ. Who is the deacon? The image of Christ. St. Ignatius uh, of Antioch is the deacon. Is Christ is the diaconus, the servant. Christ is the priest. Christ is the father of, 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 in, in the sense of paternity, of, of caring and so on and so forth. So, it is he who gives us God is all. So the church as gift is Christ. Now what is the church as response? We answer the church as response is Mary. In that sense, in that sense, the church is itself the bridal chain. The church is the place where where uh, God uh, is giving. But that gift is not a tyranny, is not an imposition. It is we Orthodox in the 20th century sometimes think that orthodoxy is a kind of hammer. Through bang! And then, uh, but no, no, it's it. Christ would not accept anybody who would accept him simply because, you know, you better do that, you know, so, so forth. It must be always the response to us. Now, where is the fullness of that response, obedience, desire, and love? Where obedience is not enslaved. You know, God, Paul says, 
doulos is to Christu, slave of Jesus Christ, and he says, stick to the freedom which God has given. And there is no contradiction. It is precisely in the image of the church as response, as obedience which is the totality of freedom, and the totality of freedom which is the totality of obedience, in which those two things cease to be contradictory. Because we are always concerned, freedom, it excludes obedience. When we have obedience, Father, where is my right? It's, it's, it's always that they end with some, with some students who come here and says, is the chapel obligatory? And I always try to answer the paradox. It is absolutely not obligatory, but if you don't go there, we'll keep you out. <laughs> I mean, uh, because it means that you don't need it. You know, and uh, if you don't need it, the chapel doesn't need you, and then no one needs you. But maybe the dental school needs you. So, uh, the moment you have that tension between obedience and freedom, we are not really free. We are not really obedient. What I'm trying to say is that this whole money This has been Schmemann Speaks, featuring the words and wisdom of Father Alexander Schmemann. For more, visit St. Vladimir's Seminary online at svots.edu.